0: let's just go let's just do it ready ready Everyone good ready oh, good. sweet yes this is the speech guys back for fake speeches and it's matt's turn matt's up what do we got
1: all right so for fake speeches i almost hesitate to call this a fake speech because i don't know it's pretty epic
0: it might be the greatest um, of fake speeches, though. Like
1: It very well could be. Because when
0: I first read it, I was like, is that fake? No, but it, like, it, is, it is not real.
1: Yeah. No, it's, uh, it was not first uttered by a real person, rather by a fictional character. But it is the Band of Brothers speech in, I believe, Act 4 of Henry V by Shakespeare, the Shakespearean play. So joining me in this discovery, rather, this journey through Shakespeare. I have Mike Westmoreland Schaefer. Great to be here. Great to be here, Pat. I've got Landon Exeter Free. Who's Exeter? I don't know. (laughs) And Ross Gloucester Johnson.
2: Okay, I'll take it. I'm here.
1: All right. So um, Shakespeare is a pretty important figure in literary history, in the Western tradition of, liter- of literature. He is said to be probably the most influential storyteller perhaps outside the Bible um, in our culture. And uh, yeah, I just thought that this speech in particular was a um, yeah, I think this speech in particular is a very approachable one it ver- it reads like a motivational not like a halftime speech that's like too cheesy like this is like a really pretty epic pump-up speech so i think that's uh probably one of the more approachable speeches or soliloquies if you will from shakespeare so are you are you gonna read it should i i Dang. think
0: i think you have to don't you I guess so. How's your, how's your iambic pentameter? Can you nail the syllables and the ups and the downs?
1: Well, I was stretching out my iambic pentameter the, uh, earlier today, and so I think we're good.
0: It's a muscle and a dialect?
1: And I'm sitting, so I don't need to... No, I, that was... All right, all right. <laughs> all right, let's roll. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland. No, my fair cousin If we marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one more, one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care. I do, I who do doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not in my desires. But, if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. No, faith, my cause, wish not that, not, wish not a man from England. God's peace I would not lose so great an honor as one man more methinks would share from, from me. For the best hope I have, oh, do not wish one more. Rather proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of St. Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast of his neighbours, and tomorrow is Saint and say tomorrow is Saint Chris, is Saint Crispian. Then, we, then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars, and say this wound I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he but he'll remember with advantages, what feats he did that day. Then shall our names familiar in his mouth as household wards Harry the King Bedford and Exeter Warwick and Talbot Salisbury and Gloucester aka Ross be in their flowing cups freshly remembered this story shall the good man teach his son and Crispin Christian Crispian shall never shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world but we in it shall be remembered, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he to-day that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gent this day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold the manhoods cheap whilst any speaks, that fought with us upon Saint Crispin's Day.
3: Cool. That mm. was a
1: load, Matt. Thank Dang. you.
2: Thanks for going for it, Matt.
1: Yeah, that was pretty rough. You should watch the YouTube video that we'll put <laughs> in the show notes because he he nailed it.
2: Hey, it takes guts to read Shakespeare out loud like that, you did it? <laughs> hey sure. Matt, do you think we for should sure. set
1: ourselves up for some
3: context here? I'm sure our fans are just on the edge of their seats to figure out.
2: Oh, you know,
3: we're, we're on a roller coaster. They want to know where the roller coaster started. They want to know what theme park we're at. For sure.
0: Or, or like, why, why did you choose this?
1: Well, I'll, I'll do both. So why did I choose it? So I remember, I literally remember this exact speech from high school. Um, so we read Henry V and like most Shakespeare that, you know, me and my classmates kind of like, Grunted through it, like weren't super into it. He's notoriously difficult to understand, but I just remembered reading this speech even before like the teacher kind of explained things and just being like, whoa, like what just hit me? Like just in several of the lines that are just, I mean, the band of brothers line, like things like that, that have like, yeah, just like really, really stuck out. But in terms of where we're at, so that the, um, the, dialogue that happened right before this speech from king henry uh king henry v so this is king henry v speaking to his troops they're basically surveying the battlefield they're surveying the enemy and they find themselves like grossly outnumbered and not only grossly outnumbered but that you know they're already exhausted from other battles and from um marching traveling um, and the other army is very fresh so basically, huge underdogs, not expected at all to win this fight. Henry VIII can tell his men are losing heart, and that's when he delivers this rousing speech. Um, and yeah, I just think it speaks a lot to just a lot of things that men really, like, I think need to hear. You know, just like, just a call to courage, a call to brotherhood, um, a call to... um take risks and um, do something good for your posterity and for the rest of the world. And yeah. So.
0: Is it the original war pep talk speech?
1: I mean, first, I certainly first documented one. I imagine there's probably something good in like the odyssey or the Iliad. One of those two. True. I don't recall any from those, but like I imagine there's probably something like that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's an important and constructive way to sort of think about it in a meaningful context land. And that's, that's sort of how I characterized it. You know, because Homer or, you know, the Iliad or the Odyssey, whoever it is, right? I mean, the Western world, you know, the, I, I, you know, people didn't necessarily have the same sort of cultural contact with those documents the way they did with Shakespeare, right? I mean at least the way I'm thinking about it, Shakespeare has a little bit more of a particular place in the continuity of the Western world as we know it. And you know, in order to sort of appreciate the speech in a more compelling way, um, than I did in high school, because I'll be honest, the speech it tested me a little bit. It pushed me, like I was saying earlier. I found myself falling asleep as I was reading various Wikipedia pages pertaining to the speech and related topics. Um, But, you know, I sort of put myself in the place of the people whom King Henry is speaking to, right? Uh, Because that is not so different than the audience that was, you know, reading the speech, right? I mean, King Henry's audience is hypothetically 1415, the Battle of Agincourt, Court, um, whereas this text was written in 1600, right? So it's virtually the same audience as far as we're concerned in terms of the kinds of lives they were living. What kind of lives were they living? What do you guys think?
0: Are we talking the people in Shakespeare's time or the people in King Henry's?
3: It's the, well. One and the same. I mean, right. I mean, we're not talking about iPods versus iPads. We're talking about (laughs) 10 cows in their backyard versus nine cows. Not a lot
0: of change in the 200. These are mere
3: peasants. Exactly. Yeah, there's just not a whole lot going on, and I think we sort of take, you know, there is not Avengers one, two, three for people to look forward to, you know. As as Matt said earlier, um, Shakespeare, most influential storyteller outside of the Bible. Okay, so you know, people are getting their stories from the Bible. You know, that's that's sort of their entertainment outside of who's kissing who in the local village, right? And um, so, you know, Landon sort of said, is this the original motivational speech? I, I think in many ways it is. It is people being able to be pulled out of the daily humdrum in a way that, you know, the scriptures could not necessarily do for them. They're kind of traditional. Their small village um, couldn't do for them. it you know, probably plugged into someone's heart in a way that had just never been sort of uh, hit before. And so I think that's the sort of attitude that we need to bring to sort of understanding this speech. And probably none of our literature teachers um, kind of did a good job of setting that context for. So, Matt, you mentioned something about your memories with this speech. Uh, in high school, do any of you guys remember this speech or play, or just like your interactions with Shakespeare in general?
2: This speech, I can't say that I remember. To be totally honest, um, I I think like pretty much everyone else, you know, we did in high school English class. We covered some Shakespeare, so whether that was, I think I remember reading Hamlet, Macbeth. We watched the movies, all that stuff. Um, so I, a pretty basic very surface-level reading of Shakespeare. I probably didn't understand very much of it. But, yeah, the speech itself, I actually don't remember. Reading through it now, I mean, some of it does sound familiar, but I don't know if I've read it before or just if it's been quoted in other places.
3: Yeah, so I actually used to quote part of the speech sort of unknowingly uh, to my cross-country team. So before cross-country meets, we would do, we do these things called strides, okay? Once you're all warmed up, you're at the starting line, you kind of do a few, uh, 50 yard, uh, runouts, you know, as if the race is starting. And after our last runout, uh, the team would huddle up, and I, as the captain, would, uh, kind of run through some things, you know, guys, look out for this on the course, you know why we're here, et cetera, et cetera. And then, it would be King's Quote. King was me, that was my nickname, and I'd share my quote for that race, and one of the quotes that I shared um, was from King Henry VIII, and it was this segment, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Um yeah, we probably did run a little more awesome than usual that particular day. So that's that's one particular interaction I had in high school with this. Um, to answer my own question, like my interactions with Shakespeare in general, there there's really nothing that stands out about it except um, watching the Romeo and Juliet film from like the 1970s. I don't know if you guys watched that one. It's got actually a great musical score. Um and a really pretty Juliet.
0: Do you just, so there's that one plus the Leonardo DiCaprio one. Did you ever see that one?
3: We did not watch that one because that one, of course, was not as faithful to the script.
0: All the language was the same. It was just set in modern-day
1: L.A. Yeah, it was. it's literally word-for-word word Shakespeare. Yeah. But oh. So it's as faithful so it's as, as it can as get. But it's do, you, just...
3: do you bite your tongue
0: at me? You, you, you have... yeah, No, but I, but had I do bite
2: buy... my tongue. <laughs> I'm going to, sorry, I don't, I hope you guys, I don't know. take it too much of a different route, but I'm just going to, I when Mike was talking there, and actually when Matt was speaking too, something kind of jumped out at me is, so, Mike, you kind of framed it as, you know, there was not going on, it was kind of maybe boring, didn't have a lot to look at, and then yet, so Shakespeare is able to speak to those people, but yet, I mean, Shakespeare was, I mean, popular, I mean, London was a major city in that time period, and even today, like, he speaks to, I think that's the interesting thing about Shakespeare, not that I'm an expert, but just kind of looking into his life a little bit, uh, prepping for the podcast. He seems to be pretty known for – like Matt said, difficult to understand, but has a wide – can have a wide range. So like Matt was said in his pretty opening segment there, like it kind of – this speech speaks to men and what it means to be a man, and yet I'm thinking, but then – Romeo and Juliet might speak to a 16-year-old girl in a very different way. So he kind of has an ability to tap into a lot of different feelings, emotions, experiences. And then like, reading about some stuff, he seems to have a very wide range of interpretations. So people argue about what do he mean, and you have people of very differing beliefs arguing strongly for this, you know, is what Shakespeare is trying to say, even though very little is known about his actual like himself and what he maybe actually was trying to put into it. it's all interpretations but for some reason maybe it's just that complex there isn't the people it seems like there hasn't been able to be a consensus to really pin down what he was trying to say in different areas i guess if that makes sense so mike you were like you said the you kind of the village 1500's not going on and yet I feel like right you can make his plays work in modern day l a with Leonardo DiCaprio and still speak to a a very wide audience and that's just to me that's just an interesting thing that he's able to do that,
3: yeah, I mean, I think you're hitting the nail on the head there in terms of you know because you know reading his wikipedia page he exactly right, people argue about oh this was you know he was against religion, he was for religion or he was gay or he was straight. All these different layers that they're trying to make case for, it. but but he sort of um, transcends is not quite the right word. But yeah, he you can't quite pin him down. And you know, think of some modern storytellers like you know I don't know Christopher Nolan or something like that, or the guy I referenced the film Vice, uh, the biopic on Dick Cheney recently where. There's complexity to that film and Christopher Nolan films where it's not like people go see Christopher Nolan or Vice-type films to see a consistent point of view. They go because they don't necessarily know what to expect. And I think that Shakespeare is sort of the first guy, first uh, storyteller um, to sort of set that tone, right? I mean – Augustine, Plato, uh, they were obviously big storytellers in a sense in the Western world, but, you know, they're not exactly um, introducing the same kind of complexity that that Shakespeare is.
0: Love me some Chris Nolan films. Do not subscribe to the Shakespearean level comparison. Just want to put that. It's good. It's not like Okay,
3: okay, so why not?
0: <laughs> what he's got four or five great films. I mean Shakespeare has forty stage level productions of varying size that have lasted five hundred years. I don't I don't think Chris Nolan's there.
3: Oh, you're saying Shakespeare is above Chris Nolan, okay. For sure. I mean, I
0: think one one aspect of it, like I've often heard that, you know. Just his ability to write pretty complex stories, hitting all the usual topics, and it wasn't the Bible. Um, I mean, he basically pinned down the English language um, and at least made a consistent um, way to reference feelings, emotions, etc., for perhaps an entire people.
3: Yeah. Oh, man. One of us should pull up some of the sayings that come from... Shakespeare himself, I was thrown off by some of these, gosh darn, I should have written some of them down, um, but yeah, he nailed down the English language, man, I was reading his uh, his epitaph uh, on his tombstone that was written in what people called English back then, it was some sort of crazy gibberish that <laughs> I don't think... Um, you know, if you just plop that text down in front of us, you would not be able to read. Maybe our producer can uh, pull that up for us here. Um, but yeah, nailed down the English language. That that is true. He was uh, known for that. All right,
1: I just so pulled one, it up. Wait, wait, wait! What did you pull up?
0: Uh, sayings from Shakespeare. Number one Dang is it, actually I just, great. I just
1: you got it. That. Well, which we might have different lists. You go first. We'll alternate.
0: All right, I've got wild goose chase. I
1: think we have the same list. Dang it!
0: Romeo and Juliet, Act Two, Scene Four. Wild goose chase. That I love that one.
1: Yeah, never would have thought that was Shakespeare. The second one is green-eyed monster, which I've never heard that phrase. Yeah, no, I guess that's like that has has, I mean, it has to do with jealousy. So like green, you know, green with jealousy, like or green with envy. Like I've heard that phrase for sure, but
0: yeah, interesting. Love is blind. The Merchant of Venice. Never even
1: heard of The Merchant of Venice. That one, I hated that play. I remember reading See, that. Being I born only... Out.
0: We only really studied Midsummer Night's Dream, Romeo, Juliet, and Hamlet. I didn't hit a lot of the Maybe, yeah, Julius Caesar was probably the most popular one.
2: So here's kind of an interesting thought, I guess. I don't know, we're diving into this, not too into the conspiracy theories, but... so. Somebody posed the question at one point, like, when, uh, is he overrated? And, I mean, just looking – if you look anything up on Shakespeare, it pretty commonly comes up. He's the greatest writer in the English language and, with, like, one of the greatest storytellers ever, like we said. So, I mean, you really can't rate him any higher. Um, so he's about as highly praised as could be, and yet there's even speculation over if he authored a lot of these plays and writings. Um I don't know if you guys had read about that at all, but I just kind of found that interesting that we, on one hand, we hold him up as the greatest writer in the English language, and on the other hand, people question if he wrote these things at all. I have
0: heard that a lot, but I I couldn't say a second and third line about it. Um, Was it just the, was the theory that it was like a group of people who co-wrote under the same name or something?
1: That's kind of the theory, and I, I don't recall a lot of details about it. From what I remember, is that well, I mean, just one of the main arguments is that just the sheer volume of stuff he produced was like almost impossible. Um, I remember seeing some crazy breakdown, just if if he would just in terms of the number of words he wrote, um, like he would basically have to be writing like a thousand words a day for like, 40 years consecutive, or some, oh, really? some kind of, yeah. like, crazy thing yeah. like that. Just, like, the sheer volume seems impossible. Um, but, like, again, is, is this, like, a bunch of his understudies writing, you know, like, half of his sonnets, you know, and, like, the things that aren't, like, the huge legendary Shakespeare works, and he's writing all the big stuff? Like, I don't know. I mean, I – yeah. I mean, I would I feel like if he – anyone who's that important is going to have some controversy, right? Like, so the Bible is like most, the most criticized book in the world, you know, half the people, you know, people who are serious about criticizing the Bible, like, yeah, Moses didn't exist. And like all this other stuff, like, there's a lot of, um, a lot of ways you can critique that sort of stuff. So, I mean, did he write literally every single word that's ever been described ascribed to him? Probably not, but I don't know. It seems too important of a figure to have survived th- that much scrutiny.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it is a useful reference or comparison between him and the scriptures, just in the sense that there is this mystery to him, right? There is all this just unknown to him. And when you group together mystery and unknown with someone who's claiming to have such a major footprint, in uh world history and world events just like scripture, then you know, it gets gets people talking and, and interested and stuff like that. Um we've we've talked a lot here about the significance of the speech here, but do you guys know anything about the um I've mentioned this is the at the battle of Agincourt here. Why 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 did the guys need this motivational speech at Agincourt? Do you guys uh find anything on that?
0: No, I would appreciate, uh, context. Is, is Henry V a real person? Was this a real battle? It was more of like a, a myth. Where are we at on that spectrum?
3: Yeah, this, this, uh, as I said, takes place in the Battle of Agincourt within the broader context of the Hundred Years War. And for those of you guys who, um were still sleeping from the Shakespeare portion of class during your uh, English history lessons uh, later on in the day. Um, hundred Years' War was basically this tit-for-tat sort of uh, uh, stuff going on between England and France as uh, each one kind of fought the other for more and more land control of over roughly a hundred years, right? Was,
0: was there boats involved? Like, May... those, aren't, those aren't the same land masses.
2: That's
3: an excellent point, which did cross my mind in the course of my research. But there's only so much research that can be done over four hours, Landon. Like, I, mean, I, know, I, I, know,
0: I know England and France kind of like they're always at each other's throats. But for like 1400s year, were they doing 50 miles back and forth across the Channel?
3: They they must have. Maybe we can get our producers on that. Uh... Hey Steve. Steve, can you look that up for us? Thanks. We'll check back in with Steve later. Uh at Agincourt. Um, the specific context for this uh kerfuffle is King Henry um, claimed rightful inheritance to the French throne because he claimed to be a descendant of one of the French royalty, I believe. And again, Steve, you can check me out on this. Um, but that was basically the impetus for the whole battle and the associated uh, battles, is that he claimed that he had a right to the French throne. All right. Um, the, the scale that was going on here once everyone got their uh, stuff together, French... 15,000 English 8,500. Okay. Now before you think, okay, one against two, not great odds. It doesn't end there. That's sort of an inflated number. 70, let me, let me hear, um, 77,000. Yeah. 7,000 of those 8,500, were not even like your hand-to-hand combat soldiers. They were like your bow and arrow guys uh, in the background, right? They were the L's from Lord of the Rings. So in hand-to-hand yeah. combat, we're talking 1,500 against 15,000, 10-to-1. That's like pitting 1993 Chicago Bulls against 1989 Boston Celtics giving the Celtics Four of your starting uh, starting players giving one of your sixth men. You only have one sixth man. So giving your sixth man to Boston, and there's Michael Jordan versus 10 Boston Celtic players and winning. That was the Battle of Agincourt
2: for you. To our Lord of the Rings fans, yes, Mike's use of elves was incorrect. To our basketball fans, I'm not sure that that's right. <laughs> okay. The number... Sorry, we
0: could have go with a more modern reference to the obscure we get, We get what you're selling. We get what you're selling.
3: Ten to one.
0: All, old line. Larry Bird versus young Michael.
3: <laughs> Plus nine other Boston Celtics players. <laughs> it was ten to one. Ten to one is the bottom line here that I want you guys to take away here. So he's, he's a he's a runner.
2: So. All right. So they needed the pump up speech. How did how did it work? What happened after that?
3: Well, they obviously won. I mean, that's, that's, all, that's all you need to know. <laughs> um, the play itself, uh, the final act, act five, ends up taking place a few years later, actually. And, uh, well, you know, everyone's kind of gets along well. Um, I believe the term coined by the French queen is Let's have French English people get, let's have French English people. Like we, the same way we have Italian Americans, African Americans, she kind of coined the term French English people in the play. So that's, uh, that's sort of the epilogue for our fans, the spoiler. Put a spoilers alert on this
1: episode, Steve, please. What, uh, so I think no we, worries. I think we all really like the, the band of brothers line, right? The we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Um, are there any other lines that really stuck out as like just a cool thought or something that really got you going or really got you pumped up? So, uh, what I put down here, guys, you know,
3: my, as this, this was right on the homework. This was a question right off the homework. Um, yeah, I think one of the elegant things that Shakespeare does here is he puts a really positive spin on something that's not easy to put a positive spin on, right? I mean, he's expecting, or King Henry's expecting a large number of casualties. And rather than, you know, just calling it like he sees it, like, oh, gosh, a lot of people are going to die here, um, you know, he uses the word or he, he articulates the idea that there will be more honor, for those who survive. So that was one thing that sort of struck me in a particular way.
2: I guess this the kind of, I guess I'm trying to read it, but it's not just one line, but the kind of just this section where he talks about this day is called the feast of christian and he that outlives this day and comes safe home. So kind of like might was saying just the fact that you know if you make it out, and that's not a you know an expectation necessarily, um but still to go and fight and <clears throat> I don't know to kind of jump away from just a line but just thinking too i would wonder i guess culturally how much you know if, if you lived in a time where it was maybe more common for men to have to go to war see combat fight possibly die or to people of our generation i mean that's a, i mean like a relatively unthought of thing right now at least like today you know what i mean like that i would have to go to, i would have to serve my country and go to war and fight and could die at any given time seems like it's just a very foreign idea to me, at least, I guess. But anyway, so again, to answer your question, that line about the section about uh, those who see old age.
1: I like that section too, particularly the line old men forget yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. You know, just old men forget, like we're all going to forget things. All of us will be forgotten at some point, but none of that matters because you'll know like what deep down in your heart, like what you did this day, like what you did when it really freaking mattered. Um, man, that's just like, and, and it's such, I think it, it's, it almost contradicts what he says about honor, right? So he's all about like, oh yeah, let's get honor. I want honor. But then he like, it's like, you know, at the end of even, yeah, just at the end of the day, like no one's going to remember bob from the battle of Agincourt, but like you will remember and you will like re like rest well you know like you will have this this kind of deep profound satisfaction in your heart from your feats and i don't know i think that's something that gets lost certainly in our culture just with like kind of the demand for attention with you know instagram and whatever you know social media stuff like we just want attention we want to be remembered um I think sometimes to the expense of, like, you know, like, you're going to be forgotten, but, like, just do the right thing.
2: I really like the part, too. Sorry, kind of the end. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manholds cheap while any speak that fought with us mm-hmm. upon this day. Um, so, I mean, just the way he even frames it, you know, people will be, you know, upset that they couldn't be here with us today. Um, so it's like a, it's like we have a privilege, not even a not even a duty. Like it's almost pr- approaching it, you know. Makes you kind of frame it like that, and um, yeah, kind of makes you want to be there with them a little bit. Which
0: I think you see in the Iliad. I fought with Achilles, like the, that exists in Achilles. <laughs> Achilles, I fought with Achilles. Um, and being a part of the war. And then the first time I read the speech, one one time through, I just immediately thought of Patton and D-Day, like a very similar here's what we're about to do boys, like, you know, be brave, you'll be remembered, like, we're destined for this, you know, let's go. Which was a real speech versus uh, perhaps the Iliad and Achilles. Um, to contrast one point Matt said, I think you know, if you're 1300s, 1400s, you know, every generation up until the last couple, like, you were a farmer, a laborer, or part of the landed gentry and a lord or a king, and there really wasn't much in between other than, like, being a part of a battle or a war and, you know, being... Being able to pass on to your family, like he fought an X thing against this cause and was a warrior. It was kind of like soldiers, warriors fighting in a war was the middle class up until the 1900s. Um, and being able to perhaps do the most significant thing with your life without starting a business or money or you know, beyond family was like just this war ethos that you see pop up certainly in this speech, um, and in kind of man's never-ending quest to conquer the, the land just over the hills.
3: Do you guys have any St. Christian's days that you uh, either missed out on or you were proudly there?
0: Metaphorically speaking.
3: Metaphorically speaking. You guys would have all went home when King Henry
1: said, you got your passports.
2: <laughs> maybe,
1: uh, maybe not quite the same in terms of like, you know, the odds being so drastically stacked against us, but I remember, uh, this was like a truly unforgettable event, um, in high school. So like, uh, I was, I played football and we had, uh, we had a coach who um, he had stopped coaching kind of halfway through the prior season because he was diagnosed with cancer and it was starting to get serious and he just had to stop, stop doing it. So I knew, I knew the guy a little bit, the guys who, who are a year older than me knew this coach very, very well. Um, we had gotten word earlier that week that he had kind of taken a turn and wasn't doing well. And we found out, or the coach basically told us before the game that Friday night that he had passed away earlier that day. Um, And basically like said that we're playing this game to honor him, you know, coach, uh, coach legal was his name. And just the emotion that we played with, um, just the way our team came together, everything was, was so it was 10 times more intense than, than a normal Friday night football game. And we murdered, like this was, this was like our rival in the conference. They were like the next best team and we freaking murdered them, um, like wasn't even close and, I've never had an experience before or since where like people were just so motivated and so like unified in um, to do something together. Like, I think that was probably the closest thing to something like that powerful and motivating where like you just came together and, and just got stuff done.
2: Yeah. Not quite maybe as dramatic as that, at least in the moment, but, um, <clears throat> took me a second but then I was, I was kind of thinking about it a little bit uh so my wife now when I asked her on our first date there was actually there was a lot of reasons at the time why I probably shouldn't have asked her out so again not that the odds were stacked against me but there was there's lots of reasons to kind of say no and at one person in particular not that they gave me a long prep speech but gave me a, a small peps uh kind of a little push speech um so I guess that was my going for it against the odds a little bit, if you will. Um, worked out well, obviously.
3: My uh, my St. Crispian's Day, though, uh, I'll throw out there. Maybe we'll leave in the extended edition of this episode, uh, available when you subscribe. Um, man, you know, when... For our one <laughs> subscriber, Craig from Missouri. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks for throwing that in there. Um, yeah. It was probably during biking for babies. For those who don't know, biking for babies, a nonprofit bicycle ride that started to fundraise money for uh, pregnancy resource centers. Uh, basically, a 1,000 mile bicycle trip in a week every summer for several years. Um, and there was one particular year that was very trying. Uh, I remember we were coming into Memphis or leaving Memphis, actually. Um, Memphis was always a significant stop because it meant you were about halfway. So you had about 500 miles under your belt, and you had 500 miles to go still. Um, in that particular year, we had about 12 cyclists, about five people in the van. So a lot of where are we going, what time do we have to leave, I'm not ready. I'm so tired. Tired times a thousand and fifty. Um, and I just remember leaving Memphis that morning, wishing that that I was anywhere, but right there. And we ended up getting through that day, but what sort of hung over me for that day was the fact that, um, we'd been doing about 140 miles a day every day, but we had the big day one hundred and eighty miles to go from my parents' place in Freeburg, southeast of St. Louis, up to Champaign in one day. And we had to get there by five o'clock for Saturday Mass. And there was one friend in particular who just really struggled and made the mileage last even longer. And her name was Brittany. I don't mind putting it out there because uh maybe you should have that out no because the way I just phrased it. But <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> My friend Brittany, um, I knew was really gonna be challenged by this particular day. And we got the first hundred miles under our day under our belt that day, um, and as we were leaving Effingham, uh, she was starting to kind of lose a few inches on our friend Sarah's tire, which means that you know it, it's just really important when you're bicycling to be on someone's tire and not have to do a an ounce of extra work. And um, so I came up next to her, knowing that we still had 70 miles to go still. Came up next to her, and I said, Brittany, how are you feeling? She's like, fine. I'm like, Brittany, you have four hours left, and you need to tell yourself something so you don't lose an inch on Sarah's tire. And whatever it is, you tell yourself that. And, uh, I, I'm still astounded by it, but she managed to get through that last 70 miles. And so when we were all able we to come through as a team and knowing that we'd had the hardest day behind us, now the last day was a mere 120 miles to Chicago. Uh, it was just an extraordinary feeling, um, coming into Chicago that particular year, knowing that that particular experience and then all the other smaller ones were, uh, were behind us as well. It's really, I remember leaving Chicago that night in the car. I remember kind of tapping my finger on the glass. It was this cool night. And it's just one of these I call I call them my big five, five happiest moments of my life. It's just kind of a, a category of itself. So so uh that's my Saint Christian's day, I suppose, or a couple days there.
2: I'm sure pretty sure she fell asleep bawling that night. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Think I got uh, got uh, all right <clears throat> one one quick quiz here and we'll see we'll see how it goes Shakespeare a lot of words a lot of rhymes a lot of um, language stories often referred in uh, compared to rappers hip-hop six lines you tell me hip-hop or Shakespeare ready
1: ooh I like it
0: rapid fire here we go to destroy the beauty from which one came, to destroy the beauty from which one came.
3: Rap. Rap. I definitely say rap. <laughs> it is rap, hip hop, Jay Z.
0: Okay. Maybe it's hatred I spew. Maybe it's food for the spirit.
1: Shakespeare. Shakespeare. That's rap.
0: That is Eminem. <sighs> what a genius. Mm-hmm. Wow. Men would rather use their broken records than their bare hands.
1: I feel like that's got to be rap, because I don't know if broken records was a phrase back then.
0: Shakespeare, Othello. Really? I was not born under a rhyming planet.
1: That's Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare.
0: It is. Shakespeare, much ado about nothing. The most benevolent king communicates through your dreams. Shakespeare, Shakespeare. rap, hip hop, Wu Tang Clan.
1: Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to with.
0: Alright. <laughs> Finally, Socrates' philosophy and hypotheses can't define me.
1: Oh, that's for sure rap.
2: Yeah, that sounds like rap.
1: Gosh, was that? I know that line.
2: It is
0: also Wu Tang Clan.
1: Oh yeah, I knew that. Mm, Wu Tang Clan. That was there. there some there are some pictures uh, in there. But that that is that is a cool chart that uh, that you have with the number of unique words used within the artist's first thirty five thousand lyrics. That is a really interesting list.
3: Yeah, that that is a great infographic. Although I sort of feel like you're the student who's like, hey, teacher says three pages. Well, I'm just going to put a huge picture here in the notes and make it look like I contributed one-fifth of it.
0: <laughs> it was a study done. It was pretty popular around the interwebs a while ago. Um, rap artists and authors and how sophisticated their words are. Shakespeare's towards the top, but uh, Moby Dick of the old genre is uh, tops, right at, right in line with Eminem and just three or four others.
3: So look it up. You know, one uh, interesting final thought here. I I'd hate to sort of rag on my literature teachers from high school because one in particular stands <laughs> out. Well, actually, two stand out. They were pretty good, but um, you know. There, one, just that fun little game you had there, Landon. Like, gosh, what a great way to sort of bring home the, the, just, just the weight of Shakespeare's language, uh, and the conscious or unconscious inspiration it brings to other, uh, storytellers of various mediums. Um, but two, you know, the speech, like we've been describing here, i mean it's it's very motivational, right? Um, but it's it brings to mind these very important like existential questions um, that should, if honestly examined, should make you feel a little little naked to the world, a little bit vulnerable. And I don't feel like we did that in high school. Um, you know, speaking on these things like, how these truths transcend uh a decade you know there there's more to being human than just uh your twitter account not that there was twitter when we were in high school um but you know i gosh i really wish we'd talk talk more about that when when we were in school i don't know about you guys but
1: yeah i think that was really well said
3: what do you guys think who's on for next week two
2: weeks That's Shakespeare.
0: I'm up next. We're, uh, last, last part of our fake speeches. Gonna be about Mm. greed and money and economics.
1: Stay tuned. Dang girl.
3: New frontiers here and we're gonna push, push our limits. What do you guys think? Any final words, final thoughts on Shakespeare?
1: I wish I had just a little bit more intelligence. To really, you know what I mean? Just to like get it, just to pick them up a little easier, you know? Because it is it is like tough to slog through, but I really do think it is important.
2: Yeah, I feel like it's hard for like novices like us to like because I mean, if I just pick up Shakespeare, I mean, without some sort of you know, I feel like it'd be like you know a course or somebody that understands it better to kind of like work you through it. You, at least for me, it would be difficult to dive deeper. I I would like to say I, I would like the idea of reading Shakespeare. But I'm probably just not going to do the work to do it.
3: <laughs> I think I'm going to watch the 1989 Henry V film this weekend. I mean, 100% a Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, you're yeah. a fool not to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I heard yeah, it. Yeah, like, up there.
0: Equally, it was somewhat popular, like mainstream. It wasn't perfect, but like it was a very good production. Yeah.
3: Okay, got
0: it.